fucking advertise. <laughs> like the GDQs, instead of watching ads, you just watch the splash screen. Okay. And fighting game tournaments, same thing. And that's all gone. All gone. Now you watch ads no matter what. Mm, well, I, I didn't even know that. I mean, uh, maybe, you know, I didn't even think once we finally get our Twitch up there, we gotta be getting close. Twitch.tv slash Bumble Adam. How, uh, how close are you? Or how close, what do you need, like, 15 followers 18, or something? 15, something like that, yeah. Yeah, get in there, and then all those with Twitch Prime for free, you can subscribe. Free sub. Yeah, free sub to the channel. I mean, I know we're supporting Bezos, but... Easy. What are you going to do? Easy what? operate. No, it's easy. Yeah, it's easy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought you were like, oh, shit, Bezos is going to come oh, after Oh, shit, <laughs> shit, easy, easy, Bezos is coming. I, uh, me and Phil are speculating that he might be the first corporation to make their own army. Yeah. Yeah. I could see it. I was, uh... I was watching uh, the Clone Wars, mm. uh, the the TV series of the robots. I could see him making a droid army. That's exactly what that was. <laughs> it was a trade federation getting <laughs> yeah. an army. I could see it happening, man. I, I don't trust him at all. Merchant republics, I'm mm. telling you. They're not mm. good. Before we open up, I want to, since this is going to be a pretty long episode, what mm. I want to do is plug the Patreon up front. Go to patreon.com slash Bumblebutt Podcast, donate at any level to get uh, up to six episodes so far. We'll have more mm. very soon mm -hmm. of Patreon episodes. And also, it helps us along. And if you also want to, you can go to BumblebuttPodcast.com and buy a shirt yes, please of do. any kind. That please would be great do. of you. All right, we're hopping back into the Midwest uh, for the finale. And we open that finale at dawn. On Saturday, October 1st, 1983, in Gwen's old hometown of Terre Haute, Ooh. Indiana. I knew, when she mentioned uh, when she mentioned that, this guy's went to so many different locations. I'm like, I'm pretty sure we heard that town name, but there's then like 50 of them. Oh, yeah. This dude's a traveling boy. That's the highway killer. <laughs> After officially being released from the Indiana State Police Post in Lowell, Larry Eiler made the 120-mile journey home. And this is because of the bad arrest, That's right? That's right. The okay. non-arrest arrest. arrest. Mm -hmm. Can't do that. Sergeant Love and Detective McPherson had two other task force members with them as they rolled up to his place. After letting Eiler walk free, they had been calling every judge they could find that wasn't fishing, as it was Friday <laughs> afternoon, after all. Finally, around midnight, a judge called back and issued a warrant to search Larry Eiler's residence. McPherson and Love went to the front door while the other two covered the back, all with guns drawn. McPherson wasn't expecting trouble, but better safe than sorry. Mm. It took five rings of the doorbell before Larry answered the door, eyes puffy from sleep and wearing only a t-shirt and boxers. Wow, when I used to deliver pizza, a lot of trailer park citizens, same outfit. Yeah, yeah same outfit. I mean... Wife beater and boxers. Uh-huh, kids playing in the background. Dick sticking out. <laughs> no, they usually put kept that away, That's but... That's good. 1990s Joe Boxer boxers on. I like Joe boxers. <laughs> They still make them? I don't know, but I did in the <laughs> 90s. Love said, Good morning, Larry. Sorry we're here so late, but we'd like to look over your home to see if there's any evidence. Anything that can help us. Is that all right with you? Yeah, I guess so, but this isn't my house, you know. The detectives put their revolvers away, didn't care that it wasn't his house, and entered the three-bedroom condo. The rooms were photo-ready, not a speck of dust, and not a thing out of place. Larry, I'm not seeing a better a cot. Where do you sleep? On the couch, but Dr. Little lets me have a room where I can keep my things. 
McPherson and Love didn't actually need Larry's help to find his room. It was a fucking nightmare in there. Clothing was either in boxes or piled in the corners, and there were beer cans scattered all over his desk, which was also full of hundreds of magazines, including Guns and Ammo, Soldier of Fortune, and the Chicago-based newspaper Gay Life. Gay Life. Is he living with uh, Lindsey Graham right now, or what's going on here? No. (laughs) It's gross. It's like, you mean... uh, 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 Like, I feel it sounds like a rich guy has, like, his... Boyfriend who just kind of lives there. Is that Lindsey what's going Graham? On? Do you mean like Frazier? No, the senator. Okay. He denies being uh-huh. gay, yes. but we're pretty sure he is something about. I don't know that much about him, but I something about he has. He's never been married. And he's has he's has a male roommate. Well, guess what? As it turns out, I read <laughs> something in the book here that I thought was homophobic. Okay. But it turned out at the time and still today, middle-aged gay men will will basically pay for the lifestyle of young, attractive gay men to live with them, even if they don't have sex. Okay. Just because they, it makes them feel younger to have a younger guy around the place. Interesting. I, I don't think that... Do people still do that, I wonder? I can't imagine. I don't want any... I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. I, wouldn't, just, I don't want to pay for no friends to no. live with me. I don't like, care how old I feel. <laughs> I feel like this is like you trying to recapture your youth Yeah. if you're doing that. Nobody, want, nobody needs that. Dr. Little, the homeowner, now hurriedly came down the stairs with little shuffling footsteps, belting his robe along the way. The officers explained why they were there, and Dr. Little was blindsided by it. Larry fumed as detectives took phone bills, t-shirts, socks, shoes, cutlery, remotes, anything they could think of. I thought you were looking for evidence. Since when are socks considered evidence? Look, Larry, you'll get all of it back just as soon as we look into them. You know there's jizz in them socks. Ugh. <laughs> Actually, that's one of his problems. He can't He can't release. He's impotent. Okay. Oh, he gets big old boners, but he can't... Okay. All right. I guess, which one would you rather have? Not just not even get a boner in the first place or just not be able to climax? God, I don't even know. <laughs> they both sound like a nightmare. Yeah. That's already the nightmare of being a male. Well, didn't they have Viagra back in this point? I bet you they yeah. did or something like it. The task force was treating all of this newfound data and evidence like a puzzle, and they started with the phone bills. There were a number of phone calls both made and received at Little's residence at very strange hours of the night. Two days later, McPherson compiled a list of numbers that weren't in his jurisdiction. There were three phone numbers up in Wakagon, so McPherson called up his old pal, Detective Colin, and asked him to run them down. Do you? Okay, just an honest question. Do you think it's a little weird... They had a bad arrest, had to release him, then they immediately got an arrest warrant on him? Doesn't that seem like... I mean, he is a serial the killer, The evidence obviously. was all there mm. for this Ralph Khalil case, and you have to realize he was arrested by Indiana police, and now he's being looked into by Illinois police. Okay. It's separate, separate, separate. Gotcha. The most prominent midnight caller was a man named John Dobrovolsky's. <laughs> who lived at 3249 North Greenview in Chicago's north side, the very same area Larry had been exterminating the drifter and hustler population. Mm, got a connection. Colin and Detective Portia Rowley were driving up North Greenview when they noticed a familiar maroon and silver Ford pickup truck. <laughs> Colin took in his surroundings as he called in the police tow truck. This was a run-down neighborhood on the north side with outdated apartment buildings and oddly narrow two-story homes like the one the Dobrovolskys lived in. 
Colin wondered what went on in the pea soup colored house. <sighs> That's an ugly house color. Absolutely. Just gonna say, I know the eighties. He kind of just. They went a little wild with their colors, but uh, man, that's an ugly house. I don't know why in the 80s they all, <laughs> it either went super vibrant or super muted. There was no middle ground. The uh, the wallpaper and the uh, wood paneling craze Ugh. and the like disgusting colored carpet, like Ugh. the shit colored carpet, yeah. never understood it. The, like weird brown with like a yellow paint on the wallpaper. <laughs> so is this house kind of in the... I guess, gay, gay it neighborhood? Is. It is. Okay, gotcha. At this time, all police knew about John Dobrovolsky's was that he was the name on the lease and he was the name on all of the utility bills. But this led to the nucleus of the investigation. Dobrovolsky's was a married man with a family, but he also spent countless nights in the gay bars, which is where he became Larry's lover. Keep in mind, this wasn't a love triangle, just three people living very strange lives and also cohabitating together. So, Larry's got two side hoes, kind of. He's got dudes <laughs> that he can live with all over town. I don't, I, I mean, I'm sure this happens with, you know, heterosexual relationships, but some, it seems like I've heard a lot of gay couples, like, they'll have, like, a an older man will just kind of have a young boyfriend who he lives with, you know a what little, I mean? Uh, sugar, sugar boy. Yeah. Sugar daddy. I don't know. Is sugar daddy? I'm not sure. <laughs> I think the sugar daddy's the one who pays for it. Yeah, that's probably true there. <laughs> John was trying to live the lie that he was hetero. He loved Sally, his wife, but definitely never romantically. He loved how she could further his public normalcy. Mm. Sally knew John was gay when she dated him, but she wanted a handsome husband even if he didn't return her affections. As for Larry, when he was at the house, he acted as nothing more than John's drinking buddy so the children wouldn't know. Oh, right, I should also mention that John and Sally had two children, and they also had two foster children. It's a strange living situation. You know, it sounds a lot like John Travolta. I'm just going to say this right now. <laughs> or any Scientologist, probably. <laughs> I mean, I think when people, uh, it seems like before they know they're maybe gay, they can have a heterosexual relationship and somehow manage to have children. Man, he knew he was gay the whole time, and so did she. And they had kids anyway. Maybe he just closes his eyes and thinks of, I don't know, Dan Marino or something. He I don't is know. quite a handsome man, I should so, say that. So that's really why she, she wanted him. I was going to say, this kind of sounded like... Dan Marino, where he had a secret family, but... Uh, An Eskimo family? <laughs> yeah. You remember that, right? Yeah, yeah. God, that got buried under the rug oh, so yeah. fast. Nobody talks about that no. anymore. We're not forgetting. We're not forgetting Dan. No. John could never relax. He was a perfectionist and neurotic to the core and was always waiting for someone to make a mistake so he could correct them. Larry paid a third of the rent and fit in completely like a part of the family. He would drive Sally's mother to the store, would play ball with the kids when they got home from school... But when the sun set on every weeknight, Larry and John would crawl from one gay bar to the next until four in the morning. Oh, wow. Okay, what an interesting... It almost... I mean, you can kind of correlate to Fresh Prince of Bel-Air if Will Smith was banging uh, the dad, I guess. Yeah, Uncle Phil? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would be fucking strange. <laughs> or J let's go with Joffrey, or Jeffrey instead. Yes, there you go. <laughs> John's temper and insistence that things go his way prevented him from holding down a job for long, and Sally once found him scrubbing the bathroom tiles with a toothbrush in the mm. middle of the night. 
Most of the time, everything was peaceful in the cramped house. However, once or twice a month, Larry and John would get into screaming and shoving matches that always started with John asking Larry to do something and him responding, Yeah, in a minute. That was like throwing gas on the fire for John, and he would fly off the handle. Mm, not patient. Mm-mm. Sometimes John would strike Larry, but Larry never fought back. He prided himself on his ability to control his temper. Little did anyone know he was just storing all the rage and taking mm. it out on drifters and hustlers. Usually after one of these fights, Larry would just go outside to his truck and sulk. But when things got really heated, he would disappear for days at a time before returning as if nothing had happened. Okay, so... That's how he lived at Dr. Little's place as well as here. And They'd get in a fight and then he'd take off. Mm -hmm. So we know his trigger now. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's not like... <laughs> You get in a fight with your wife or the mom or something. This is just him him and his, I guess, secret boyfriends. Yeah, his goes secret on the handle. public to the, his wife boyfriend. Does Okay, I guess we... Did you mention, does Larry just straight up say he's a gay man? No. No, no. but he has uh, he, very he close friends. In, he lives in fear that anyone would call him gay or queer or and a faggot or any of that stuff. I mean... People have to be wondering, like, you guys seem awfully friendly over there at the... I can't even pronounce the guy's last name. Dobrovolsky. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you, the kids have to be like, why is uh, Uncle Larry over here all the time? That's what they called him, too, Uncle I Larry. I bet they did. That was classic 80s. It's just part of the fam. <laughs> just part of the sitcom why is family Uncle here? Larry kissing Dad? <laughs> the police tow truck pulled up in front of the house, and now Colin's problem was getting Larry out of the house without a warrant. He told the driver to turn on his flashing lights to see if Eiler would step out, and a moment later he was walking determinedly out the front door towards the tow truck driver, saying, What are you doing in my truck? Colin ID'd himself and watched Eiler's reaction. It was like someone cracked a cold egg down his spine. We want to take your truck to Waukegan, if that's alright with you. Look, in the last episode, those Indiana cops already did this to me. I don't understand why I have to go through this again. We were in Indiana as well, but we missed you by about an hour. The tire fingerprints they took are fucking worthless, and we need your actual tires to make plaster casts. I really don't want you to take my truck to... Wait, wait a minute. Why the fuck walk a gun? Larry, we could have been assholes about this and just jerked your truck up onto a flatbed and ruin your transmission. Instead, just toss us your keys and come with us. Okay, classic cops there. We're doing you a favor. Yep, we're helping you out here, Larry. God, how primitive. Like, you have to make a plaster cast of his tires. No shit. Well, <laughs> it's better than last week when the assholes just dumped paint on him and drove over a piece of paper. <laughs> like a fucking five-year-old. Yeah, oh my god. Sally Dobrovolskis came out as Colin was speaking and asked what was going on. Larry just shook her off and asked her to go inside and get his truck keys. Then he asked again, I think I have the right to know. What's in Wakagon? That's where the Lake County Sheriff's Police HQ is. We're investigating the murder of Ralph Kalisle. We want to talk to you, but not here in the middle of the street. Are you going to lock me in a cell like the cops in Indiana did? Colin smiled. He knew that snafu was going to mm. bite the entire case in the ass when this finally went to court. No, Larry, we actually just want to talk to you. And that's hard to do here. Would you mind coming with us to the Area 6 Detective Station? Okay, all right. So Larry's being pretty cooperative. He's nothing but cooperative, like, mm. the whole time. It's insane. I mean, from judging how his murders go, he probably wouldn't have much evidence in any of these homes. 
Uh, the truck, though, that's a different case. The truck's a whole different kettle mm-hmm. of ballparks. John Dobrovolsky's then came charging down the street. He had been at the corner store. Eiler's lover was a slim man with strawberry blonde hair and a full mustache. He was so sure of himself, he was downright arrogant, and asked in a short-tempered tone just exactly what the problem was. Larry was able to calm John down by explaining they had to cast his tires as evidence to rule him out of the case. Larry voluntarily got into the passenger seat of a detective's vehicle and followed the tow truck to Area 6. Once Larry was out of sight, Colin circled the block and asked Dobrovolsky's if him and Eiler were lovers. John was furious when he replied that they were not. (laughs) John consented to a search of his home. He was worried about Larry and was sure he was innocent of whatever the police thought they had on him. You see, Larry had told his family that the police trouble he'd gotten into in Indiana was because he accidentally sold booze to a minor at the liquor store he worked Saturdays at. John wanted to be with Larry for support, so he asked Colin to take him to the Area 6 station. Colin agreed, but only under the condition that he also agreed to an interview when they got there. I don't think they'd go to this much trouble if he sold booze to a minor, especially (laughs) not in the 80s. No, certainly not. Where they take your fucking truck (laughs) and and search it, and you're sitting in a goddamn... They actually process you and interview you? Yeah, the 80s, they did not give a fuck. No, they'd give you a ticket, Mm. if if anything. I mean, you'd have to be like eight years old before they'd give you a ticket. Mm -hmm. Like eight, nine and up, you're okay buying booze as a minor. Anything under that, you might get in trouble. My dad told me he used to have to walk down to the store for my grandma with a signed note for cigarettes and booze when he was like six, seven. Yeah. Like, John, Johnny, go to the store and get your mom's booze and cigarettes. <laughs> if they didn't outlaw that by the time I was old enough, I'm pretty sure my mom would have tried that, too. <laughs> go get me my pack of GPCs, will you, little buddy? Oh, GPCs. Mm, be like, but she she was nice. She'd be like, you can get yourself a candy, too, for That's doing good. it. That's yeah. good. Yeah. Get a Snicker while you're there. <laughs> the interview began bog standard as could be. Colin asked Dobrovolsky's how long he'd known Eiler, and John was able to recall the exact date and time they met. Detective Portia Rowley jumped in with the first question that might strike a nerve. They had dropped the pretext that the two weren't lovers on the way to the station. Can we ask, did your sexual preferences ever lead you into bondage roleplay with Larry? Portia asked clunkily. No, I don't like bondage. Larry and I don't do it. Colin then asked, how does Sally feel about you and Larry's relationship? She tolerates it. She's understanding and she loves me. That's not important. Why is Larry a suspect in these murders? Colin ran down what the police had so far and why they were pretty sure it was Larry. The entire time Colin was speaking, Dobrovolsky's just stood there, dumbstruck, before saying, If at all possible, I need to speak to Larry about this. While Colin was talking to John, two other detectives were grilling Larry. Tell us about you and John. I am very, very, very much in love with him. Have you ever cheated on John? Sometimes when we would argue, I would go to the gay bar and spend the night with a stranger. I always felt so guilty about it afterwards. You wouldn't tell John, would you? You and John, (laughs) that shit doesn't have anything to do with us. Larry, that knife in your truck, where'd you get it? We know how you stabbed Mark Henry and left him for dead. Do you pick up a lot of hitchhikers? Why, Larry? Why do this to them? Larry began twirling a tuft of hair between his fingers, a sign he was getting nervous. You know, Larry, if you got problems, we can send you to a doctor and make you better. I'm fine. You know what? This is ridiculous. I want a lawyer. 
The interviewing detective, Fagan, went over to the cabinet and got out the North Loop phone book. Good luck, Larry. It's four in the morning. None of them are awake (laughs) at this hour. I just want to get out of here. After Colin wrapped up his interview with John, he dejectedly walked into the conference room to try one more time on Larry. I really think it would be best if you cooperate and confess to these murders. We know you did them. Until you confess, there isn't much I can do to help you. But if you want to cooperate, I'll see you are protected. I didn't do them. The detectives and sheriff's police gave up with a shake of their heads. They let the two lovers reunite so everyone could go home. Mm. Smitty, Colin, and Raleigh had now been up for 24 hours and were frustratingly no closer to anything than they were 24 hours previous. Deciding to put Larry and Dobrovolsky's on the 5 a.m. train back to their home rather than drive them personally, the detectives were standing outside smoking as a uniformed officer escorted the lovers to his vehicle to take them to the station. Okay, so this is just uh, spite them a little bit. Mm, yeah, it's funny because Colin was like, I'm not fucking driving them back. <laughs> they, they can fucking take a 5 a.m. train. Here's the thing. I love how Larry's worried about uh, with Dave finding out about it. or John. Dobrovolskis. I like how he's worried about him finding about, out about his infidelities and not the murder charges that are coming I here. know. <laughs> Jesus. In a fit of rage, Colin went up to Larry and started poking him in the places Larry had stabbed the drifters and shouted, Hey, Larry, you caused us to stay up late tonight, and by not being honest, you're causing us to do a lot of footwork. Next time we talk, I'm going to hurt you for real. Wow, I don't think that's legal. Nope. <laughs> Two hours later, by coincidence, another of Larry's victims was found by mushroom hunters in Kenosha County, Wisconsin. They stumbled across a large garbage bag off Highway 31. Inside was a human torso. The head, arms, and legs had been sawed off with a fine-toothed blade, like a hacksaw. Stranger still, the body was completely drained of blood. The other pieces of the body were never found. Jesus. I was just going to say, you know... (laughs) Mushroom hunters, did they grab his penis accidentally and be like, oh, here's a nice mushroom. We got a big one. (laughs) (laughs) And like, oh, shit, no, this is not a mushroom. There's a body there. Doesn't one of Jordan's brothers collect mushrooms? Ah, his older one, I think. They're Uh, all older, aren't they? He doesn't uh, have any The oldest of the older. Uh, I don't think, I wonder if he's ever found a body in the woods. I can't imagine so, but... uh, but yeah, that would be a horrific sight to uh, stumble upon. Yes. Jesus. Yes. Well, yes, a garbage bag with a torso in it. Yes. Yeah. This is why when I'm out and about, never open a garbage bag. No, no. Just God, leave. No. <laughs> Don't even look at it. Leave because... everything where it was. <laughs> yeah. Normally, with a body like this, there was no way to ID the torso. But the pathologist doing the autopsy noticed that the chest had undergone a bunch of surgeries to connect a concave chest, which is a spinal defect. Okay. Comparing x-rays with the handful of people that need this surgery, the victim was ID'd as 18-year-old Eric Hansen from St. Francis, Wisconsin. Is that really from a spinal thing? It is. I knew a kid who had that. He had like a... It looked like a baseball hit him in the middle of the chest like mm. full speed it was just like a big divot in mm-hmm. there it's i did a spinal defect really yeah. mm-hmm. interesting well all we are is brain and spine basically right so <laughs> right everything either comes from one of them when sheriff's detective lee cope examined the autopsy photos he contacted neighboring lake county illinois for info on the active serial killer they were tracking colin faxed over larry's case file and several photos after showing larry's picture around town Having several people say he looked familiar, Eric Hansen was added officially as the 14th victim of Larry Eiler. 
Two more hours later, when businesses were opening all over the north side of Chicago, Larry Eiler walked off a train and directly into Kenneth Ditkowski's office. Ah, the first customer of the day, thought Kenneth. Oof. Can I help you? Is this a traffic ticket or something? <laughs> murder. They think I've done a bunch of murders. Ditkowski pulled out a chair for Eiler and almost fainted on the way to his own. Mm. He straightened his suit jacket over his vest to stall for time as he thought about what to say next. I'm not a criminal lawyer, you must understand. You really might want to find someone else. How many murders are they charging you with? A few here and a few in Indiana. Well, you're here, so you haven't been charged. How do you know you're a suspect? The police told me. They stopped my truck and they took some things out. Last night, a cop wouldn't quit poking me and they didn't let me go until 4 a.m. Can you imagine? Someone on a murder trial calls 1-800-ASK-GARY and is just like... Okay, I'm a suspect in multiple murder cases in different states. Well, can I speak to Gary? I need help immediately. <laughs> I wonder if they just hang up on you. I don't know. They, yeah, they probably be like, okay, prank phone call. As you're sitting in jail, actually trying to get an attorney. <laughs> I need Gary, and I want it's my money, and I need it now. That's right. <laughs> Ditkowski, hearing at least twenty breaches of conduct in the few sentences Larry said was starting to think this was, in fact, the kind of case he liked. How did you hear about my services? A friend of mine got caught buying cigs in Indiana and bringing them over the border. He says you did a good job by him. The police have been harassing me. They took my things in Terre Haute, and they harassed and poked me in Wagakin. Ditkowski was still undecided, but took Larry's name and asked if he was beaten or abused by police. Larry explained the police were very nice to him, mm. but he didn't think they should be following him and bothering him wherever he went. The lawyer took a deep breath and said, Look, Larry, I have to think about this for a while, all right? What I want you to do now is provide me with a list of names and numbers of the police you've interacted with. Once I have that, I can decide whether to handle this case or refer you to someone who does felony work. It sounds like this guy, even this guy might not be like John and Cochran, but he's like... There's something, the police are, are not following the law. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> and he is going to kind of go on the offensive that way. Mm. After Eiler left, Ditkowski got to call in through Larry's reference sheet. The lawyer wasn't familiar with this case, but there were two things that bothered him greatly. Larry was only a suspect because someone turned his name over to the police, no doubt a spurned lover or rival. And number two, it seemed to him that Larry was being blamed for every young man murder in a four-state area, as if police were trying to heap all of their outstanding murders on him to clear their records. On Wednesday, Ditkowski called Sam Elliott lookalike Willie Smitty Smith <laughs> and really got under his skin. He got Smitty to admit they didn't have enough evidence to bring charges against Eiler and also forced Smitty to release Larry's truck by the end of business today. You think, you think a cop would actually tell you how much evidence they have? I mean, maybe they legally have to for a lawyer. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Well, the thing is, that whole non-arrest arrest was mm. all about... Oh, he's just saying... You, we... didn't, you never charged him with anything. Mm. You shouldn't have looked at his truck, blah, blah, blah. Mm, and he got I him see. to fucking admit that to Ooh. him. So, Ooh, not good. As soon as the lawyer hung up the phone, however, Smitty called state's attorney Ray McCoskey and asked for a search warrant that would let police hold the truck indefinitely. When Ditkowski showed up at the station for the truck... 
Smitty put on a sarcastic, sad tone and said, Sorry, nothing I can do. State's attorney wants to hold on to the truck for now. Uh-oh. I, I Well, I guess they didn't have a cell phone or anything to call him ahead of time, but... Uh, well, he definitely could have called his office. <clears throat> yeah, I left a message. He certainly could have called his office at any time after, well, he, after he got that news, but he wanted to make him make yeah, the trip. Yeah, he, he wanted to piss him off. Ditkowski officially signed on to defend Eiler after that insult and went on the offensive. He put together a lawsuit against the police department and gave local media an exclusive shadow interview with Larry Eiler. With his face blacked out and his voice slightly shifted, Larry got on TV and said, If I were going to murder somebody, I certainly wouldn't leave things in the back of the truck. It doesn't take too much of a genius to realize if you killed someone, you shouldn't leave a knife with their blood on it in your truck for the cops to find and take you away. Does this actually exist? I was looking all over for Couldn't it. find it? Yeah. Sometimes that happens. I wish we could watch it, but sometimes it's just it's I'll, gone I'll try and find it tonight, for sure. Again. Because this was a homosexual case in nature, media hadn't given Larry a cute nickname like Son of Sam, BTK, Hillside Strangler, because they didn't care enough. Mm. After the TV interview, however, when Larry announced his intention to sue the police at the Dirksen Federal Building the next day, there were six TV crews and three newspaper photographers staked out at the entrance to the building. Because Larry had given his interview in silhouette, he was able to stroll <laughs> past all of them unmolested. Finally, a producer from the station where he was interviewed pointed him out, and the reporters descended on him like a pack of hyenas. Eiler answered no questions and walked straight face to the court clerk's office. Ditkowski halted his rapid strides just long enough to announce that they were suing both Indiana and Illinois, for 14th Amendment violations, and we're seeking a quarter of a million from each state in damages. Jesus. I mean, I've never heard anything so wild as a... <laughs> like, right now, I'm assuming it's kind of looking like a serial killer is going to be uh, winning charges against a state. Like, and the worst part is there's only a handful of people that know how <laughs> fucked up it is. Like, mm -hmm. the general public kind of thinks he's being fucking harassed. Mm-hmm. I suppose they don't want to give out too many details in case he isn't and the other real ones out there or whatever, so... Then that's probably, like, they should be facing criminal charges <laughs> if they bungle it that bad. Detectives Colin and Rowley returned to Chicago to try and uncover more about Eiler's personal life. They started with flight attendant <laughs> Phil Rogers, who the newspaper Gay Life had done a story on. Phil moved to Chicago the previous year and was walking down Clark Street one night when Eiler drove by, turned around, and struck up a conversation. Phil hopped in the truck, and they went to a restaurant on Halstead Street, another predominantly gay strip, mm. to get to know each other better. Over the next few weeks, they would meet dozens of more times, with three of these dates leading to sex. But he's not gay. Not gay at all. <laughs> Eiler eventually asked if he could tie him up, but Rogers told him he wasn't into bondage. Rogers also informed detectives that twice Eiler had asked to take him up north to Wisconsin to have sex in a field. Once again, Phil refused him. He wasn't into the outdoor scene any more than he was into bondage. I want any of our gay male listeners to let us know if this isn't <laughs> taking some your date up to the north of Wisconsin to have sex in the field. Isn't that the most romantic thing you've ever heard in your life? Apparently to Larry Eiler, <laughs> it's just all ropes and outdoor sex. You that's know, what I, gay sex that's what gay life is like. I mean, if they would have just gave him a special on the Outdoors channel, I think we we wouldn't have this problem. We would have been, we would be in business. <laughs> Late night outdoor bondage with Larry Eiler. Perfect. Perfect. And 23 kids are still alive today. See? 
Rogers told them that Eiler became violent during sex and seemed to fantasize that his partner was a woman. That is, he would scream bitch and whore at him and seem to look through him instead of at him. I feel like I've never heard that before. Fucking strange. Like the, yeah, that is strange. I don't think I've ever heard of that before. Rogers eventually realized he was being used. Eiler would only call him up when he was fighting Dobrovolskis, and he would tell Rogers his fantasies of having a three-way with all of them. Rogers said he may have been keen on the idea if Eiler didn't get so damn violent. Mm. Night was falling, and detectives headed to Halstead Street Gay Bar District, right as the bars were starting to fill up. In this three-and-a-half-block strip, there were six gay bars, each with a different aesthetic and tempo. Side tracks was lit in blue, and there were about ten customers standing along the back wall, with the music so loud it drowned out any attempt at conversation. It seems like um, gay bars, like, they, they love to have different aesthetics on each of them. Hell yeah. Still today. Like, some of them are leather bars, some mm. of them are regular bars, like like college frat bars where it's weird, like the, a weird energy. The, the regular bars don't. I mean, 90% of the time, it's the same thing. It's either a bar or a pu- or a club. Mm-hmm. It's like you're either going to a bar or a <laughs> club if for the straight scene. You don't have awesome different worlds you can go to. No, the uh, the only difference I remember is there's some that is like the bros, and then there's some that's like kind of a different age group. Or, and, oh, yeah, yeah, old people. Yeah. yeah. And not to mention all of those bars can serve the same demographic at different times of day right old people in the day young (laughs) kids at night you know right at little gyms the mood was serene with soft lighting good conversation and the sharp clicks of multiple pool games no matter which bar they went to they didn't want to scare potential witnesses away with case files so they took down information on cardboard coasters and shoved them in their pockets the bartenders at every establishment were more than willing to cooperate but they couldn't help that much To them, Eiler was just another regular. No fights, no violent outbursts. The Illinois detectives felt they learned all they could in Chicago about the case and would have to go to Indiana to fill in any more of the puzzle. Do you think they were, like, dressing to fit the scene here? Do I think they were dressing up like uh, like like, gay people? So they didn't stand out like cops? (laughs) I just picture cops not understanding, like, gay culture, and they just... It's just two Freddie Mercury's walking in there. They just cut off their uniforms <laughs> yeah. way too short, so they look like village people. And <laughs> they, walk in. they they unbutton one extra button on their shirt, <laughs> so their chest hair stuck out. Like, okay, we're gay now. And they dye their mustache black. Put one earring in. Perfect. Yeah, the left one, right? The <laughs> yeah. left one's the gay one. The next morning, the pair set out for Indianapolis to augment their case. Detective Portia Rowley stayed at Task Force HQ to comb through their case files, while Colin partnered up with Task Force Detective Dan Henry. First stop was the First Citizens Bank, where Eiler had taken out a loan for his truck. Next was Larry's sister, Teresa Mole, who worked at the town bowling alley. She was straight up with them, saying she knew Larry was gay since he was in high school. She knew he was into ropes and whips, but she didn't know of a time he'd ever hurt anyone. What about the stabbing of Mark Henry five years ago? Referring to the Marine he tied up in the back of the truck and stabbed. Mm. But the man was able to escape to the safety of a trailer park. He told me that was self-defense. You believed him? He never went into details, not in person. Police would never know the Larry Eiler that everyone who grew up with him knew. He was warm and caring to them. For example, in third grade, his friend Mabel was returning to school after having measles for a month, and she was worried her classmates would make fun of her. Larry hugged her and gave her a pack of M&Ms that he had been carrying with him to give her every day since she was absent. Wow, that's really nice of him. Seriously. Yeah, better than peanut butter. Peanut butter, not at this time, that didn't (laughs) exist. All they had was regular and peanut. 
Yeah, I hope I I don't know. I guess it's toss up then. They didn't have pretzel M Ms. They didn't have peanut butter M Ms. They didn't have brownie M Ms. What a what a horrible time period when you don't have different types of M Ms. Probably only had one flavor of Doritos. Oh, oh my god! One flavor of Pepsi. Oh, Crystal Pepsi probably. <laughs> I think that was nineties. Was it? I thought yeah. that was eighties. <sighs> Maybe. Larry was the youngest of four children, and perhaps the most affected by family issues. He was only two and a half when his parents divorced. His mother, Shirley, worked days in a factory and nights as a waitress, but still didn't make enough money to keep her four children fed, housed, and clothed. Out of desperation, she sent Teresa to live with one relative and Larry to another so she could focus on raising her oldest sons. Shirley almost gave the two to an orphanage, but didn't have the heart when she got to the door. Jesus, she must have really been struggling. Where the hell's the dad? I mean, I know they're divorced, but Jesus is a complete deadbeat. Yeah, he's abusive, deadbeat mm. piece of shit. And really, Shirley's not much better. If, uh, really? We'll see, we'll see. Okay, okay. Shirley thought all she needed to heal the family and bring them all back together was a strong father figure in the home. She married two more times to abusive drunks, and each time she would call Teresa and Larry back to live with them. And each time the marriages ended disastrously and the children were sent back away. Larry was now beginning to assert himself to his mother over her horrible taste in men. And for his troubles, he was sent to a home for unruly boys. Ooh, okay. That's not good. Being abandoned by his mother like this over and over every time he acted up mm. really did a number on his mental health. Being apart from his family was devastating and the priest that ran the boy's home called Shirley and begged her to have one last chat with the boy before she forgot about him forever. The boy said through a face full of tears that he would do his chores and be a good son forever. Shirley joined him in crying and hugged her son, taking him back home hand in hand. This constant back and forth gaslighting is ridiculous. Mm. It was almost like he was in an unwitting romantic one-sided relationship with her, and he and it really formed his idea of trust and relationships. Yeah, yeah, that'll. Uh, it's a rough childhood right there. Mother, he feels like his mother doesn't like him. Mother and, and his dad, obviously not in the picture. So, uh, but then again, I, I'm gonna go out on a limb and assume Larry's three other siblings didn't turn into serial killers. That's so. the thing; none of them did mm, that we know of. That we know of. <laughs> Flash forward to college where Larry never went. Remember, he was accepted, mm. but he said, fuck that. And uh, he dropped out to be a security guard at the Indiana National Bank. And then he spent six months as a goddamn Pinkerton agent in Indianapolis. I feel like this is where he turned gay. This, this is probably the Pinkertons. it. The Pinkertons <laughs> changed him. <laughs> After that, he had jobs at a shoe store and a trucking company and then spent a long time collecting welfare. Now he lived off odd jobs and house painting when they came up and when he was in the mood to work. Mm, just like Albert Fish. All, surprisingly, <laughs> a lot of these idiots love painting houses. I guess. I don't... If you don't like working, I feel like painting... I hate... I don't like painting. So the it's good like, thing about that is you negotiate your own job mm, and you work your own hours for yourself. I could see why that would be nice. Gotcha. You're okay. providing the labor and collecting the money at the same time. Gotcha. Makes sense. Larry would have sex with men he met at a bar, but preferred to stay in his social circle, despite the awkwardness of dating your friend's exes. Apparently, it's pretty common in homosexual circles to date the same people, since they are a minority group and there aren't that many open ones, especially in the 80s. 
That makes complete sense, honestly. Yes, I was thinking about that. Like, if somebody started dating one of my ex, one of my friends, I'd be like, "What? There's women are fifty percent of the population. <laughs> Why don't you fucking go find a different one?" I feel like uh, I don't know about the '80s, but uh, males, ma- gay males, I know there's a little, like a really high percentage that are uh, they cheat a lot. Sure. So yeah. maybe they, if they cheat a lot and there's not that many of them in the area. You're going to overlap. Mm. That all changed when he met Dobrovolsky's, however. He was in love to the point of unhealthy obsession. Larry needed at all times to feel like he was the only man in John's life. And yet, from what Colin could suss out from all these interviews, Larry resented his dependence on John and wanted casual relationships. But he was in love and jealous and possessive. It was a difficult internal conflict indeed. That is. Jesus, that's like contradicting shit there. What came of this was paranoid delusional jealousy. Although Larry cheated on John constantly, Larry kept trying to find hints of John's infidelity, even if it meant doing mental gymnastics to twist facts to justify his fears. Honestly, this is not serial killer behavior because I found through my Growing up in the 30, almost 35 years in the right. world, uh, people who cheat on others generally are the most insecure, so... They're going to be the most suspicious, mm-hmm. definitely. Since Colin had driven all the way to Terre Haute, he wanted to talk to Larry's first known victim and survivor, ex-Marine Mark Henry. This isn't the wrestler, right? It is not the world's strongest <laughs> man, Mark Henry. I, I don't know how I remembered that man, but... Well, it's, he's, he was awesome. He's a big boy. He was huge. He could have busted right out of the handcuffs. <laughs> they caught up with him at his job at Morris Trucking Company. Mark walked them to the clearing in the forest where he was handcuffed and had a butcher knife plunged in his chest by Larry Eiler. The information certainly fattened the manila envelope, but it didn't help Colin understand the killings any better. Dr. Little, Larry's Indiana roommate, was out of town for the week, so detectives went to another known friend and past lovers of Eiler, also a doctor, Frank Smith. <laughs> He's got a type. <laughs> he likes doctors. He loves them nervous little doctors. When uh, when his mom said, grow up, marry doctor, uh, he, took the, he took that and went with it. <laughs> Why doctor, just one? <laughs> Dr. Little. <laughs> Dr. Little. I mean, too bad it wasn't Doolittle, then he talks to animals, too. Perfect. It was Eddie Murphy. He was banging Eddie Murphy. Oh, he did get in some <laughs> trouble for, for that at some point, didn't he? Uh, Eddie Murphy tried to pick up a... Uh, yeah, he he, he uh, <clears throat> picked up a uh, trans person mm-hmm. and then said, told the police he... What did he do? He like told the police he was just giving her a ride That's or something, right. him or her a ride. That's right. It was just like everybody knew what he was doing because it was a known sex worker, too. Sure. It's like, Eddie, we know what you're doing out here. You're not being a good Samaritan. (laughs) You're not helping her get down to the clinic. You're just uh, trying to fuck. (laughs) Eiler had met Frank Smith at a party in October of 1981, and the two had hooked up until January 82 when Dr. Smith broke off the relationship because Larry had no ambition or goal in life. And because of the violence. Mm. Eiler was a possessive and jealous man. Detectives asked if Larry ever did anything strange in bed, and the doctor said he liked to call him bitch and whore, but Smith only allowed this once, and that was the first time. He also mentioned Larry wanted to do bondage with him, but he flat out refused. To Smith, it seemed Larry had a hard time accepting his own homosexuality and brought out a strange and horrifying temper. He would fly off the handle over small annoyances or inconveniences, 
but never at major things. You know, I, I know you mentioned earlier that he calls him a bitch and a whore because he wants to be straight or whatever. Yeah. I wonder if that's like a weird, I don't know, could it be like him saying that towards his mom too, maybe? I that's kind of what I was thinking yeah. with the abandoning and taking back. Yeah, so weird. I, I, all the true crime shit I've heard, I don't think I've ever heard of someone call like in a gay relationship calling him a bitch or a whore because they're upset. Acting they're like not. they're a woman. Yeah. yeah. Very interesting. Colin decided to call it a very long and informative day and headed back to Task Force HQ to collect Rowley and head on back up to Wakagon. When they arrived, expecting the building to be empty, it was instead practically buzzing with energy. The Illinois and Indiana detective pair ran inside. Once again, more mushroom hunters had found three unusual mounds. One of them turned out to be a skeleton covered with debris and leaves. The shroom hunters didn't check the other two, just hauled ass to a farmer's house to call police. Are these the same mushroom hunters? Different. Did different. different mushroom mm -hmm. hunters. Mm-hmm. Okay. Apparently those truffles, huge in <laughs> fucking Wisconsin. Really? I guess. I, not like the uh, the ones where you need pigs, I'm assuming. Yeah, I guess. Not. I have no idea. I think those type of truffles are only in France, maybe, or like Italy. Ukraine, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I guess all mushrooms are a truffle of some kind, right? I don't, no idea. I, I, I don't know. I didn't know there's this many uh, mushroom hunters slash cadaver humans. I didn't either <laughs> until Jordan was talking about it that one mm. time. Talking about how he how there's a whole community of mushroom hunters around the place. Well, I mean, I know morels go for a lot, and uh, what it's the other one that goes for a lot? I don't remember. There's two mushrooms that are rare in Minnesota that go for a lot of money. Chicken. Maybe. Of the woods, right? <laughs> I can't remember. I that might be. Wait, what? what if this is Mario and Luigi who brought in a skeleton here? Do you know that that... <laughs> The mushroom that they eat is based off of a real mushroom that allows you to, like, talk to God. So it makes you trip balls? It's called, like, the Am Amskilla, something like that. But, yeah, the red and white cap mm. mushroom is a uh, a known hallucinogen. But it doesn't make you double in size. Nope. Damn nope. it. God but the purple it. version does poison you, just like in the game. <laughs> so that's okay. crazy. That's good. McPherson passed Colin in the hallway. He was on his way to the location. Phone records suggested that a payphone was used less than 100 yards from the gravesite to call Dr. Little's residence. Half an hour later, he called the task force HQ from that very payphone. This is Sam. I'm at the payphone, and from here, I can see the barn where the gravesites are. I think we know who used this payphone to call Little's apartment. Inside the barn, detectives found a finger of a latex glove. In Larry's truck, they had found a bunch of latex gloves, mm. and one of them was missing a finger. Unfortunately, there was no way to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that this was the same fingertip. There are millions of latex gloves, yeah. just like it being used every day in America. I can can I can attest that yep. they break off very easy. So easy. Especially the shitty nitrile ones we mm -hmm. had. Eiler was definitely leaving clues, but none of them substantial enough to hold up in court. Colin thought he'd be well on his way back to his wife and children in Illinois by now, but instead he went to collect Tom Henderson from his home, Henderson, if you'll remember from all the way back in part one, was the spurned lover of one James Williams, a man Larry had stolen from him. Henderson was scrambling a little bit now, saying that the call to the tip line had nothing to do with him stealing James from him, he just thought Larry matched the psychological profile that was published. Colin had to hammer away at Henderson to get him to admit that it wasn't Larry he harbored ill will for, 
but his boyfriend Williams. The night before he called the hotline, Henderson got in a screaming match with Williams when he came home and saw Larry's truck in the driveway. Henderson then smashed Larry's passenger window and stormed away to stay with a friend. Okay, I guess, uh, yeah, that sounds like a scorned lover there. Smash out the window. Yeah. Colin's head was spinning. He was trying to comprehend all the relationships that were happening at the same time within this group. So far, we have John and Sally, John and Larry, Larry and Williams, Williams and Henderson, Henderson and John, John and Williams. It was like a closed circuit loop of sex and love and need and greed and sometimes hatred. Mm, they they made their own like degree of separation here. They're, they are. <laughs> they, they did. They're in a Tron world now. Uh, it's just like the Kardashians. Uh. <laughs> where did Doctor Litter? Where did Doctor Little fit in all of this? Henderson said Larry and Little's relationship was platonic. Little paid Eilers bills and took him places around the country. And like we were saying earlier, this is a common occurrence mm. where middle-aged men basically pay young men just to accompany them places. I don't know why, but when you keep saying Doctor Little, I just keep envisioning Dexter from Dexter's Dexter's Labra- La- <laughs> Laboratory. <laughs> yeah, he is a little doctor-looking like, fellow just, with his little lab coat. I don't know why. It's like, I envision no matter what, sleeping awake. Wherever he is, he just wears that outfit. It doesn't help the case either that earlier I did say he was taking little shuffling steps as he was coming <laughs> down the hallway. <laughs> the shocking discovery of the killer's hiding place near an abandoned barn led to a letter coming into the task force from West Virginia resident Ed Healy. Healy wrote that he had visited Indianapolis June 1st, 1980, and while at a gay bar got picked up by Eiler. When they got back to his place, Larry handcuffed him and beat him for over an hour before holding a shotgun to his head and screaming that he was going to do it. Jesus. Police, with this testimony, were trying to wrap this up with a pretty bow. Sergeant Love and Detective McPherson had a stroke of genius one night. What if a military satellite was flying over Larry's ritual grave barnyard while his truck was there? The next morning, the pair were on a plane down to New Orleans to the Naval Intelligence Office with dreams of high-resolution aerial photographs <laughs> of Eiler stabbing a victim I, dancing in their heads. I feel like this is not going to work. <laughs> it seems like a stretch. I, 1980s technology? I don't know, man. A guard led them through a corridor to a back room where an officer had 23 black and white blown-up images on the table in front of him. The officer said, you have to remember, these were taken at least at a thousand miles up. You should be able to make out a truck, though. Do you see that there? And he pointed to a few pixels on the photo. <laughs> it looks like a dot. <laughs> the detectives tried not to let their disappointment show as they took a taxi back to the airport. Uh, he So he said, this little pixel here, that's the pickup? Yeah, and wow. the detectives were like, Mm, that'll never hold up <laughs> fucking anywhere besides our dreams. The next afternoon, Colin and Raleigh took a trip to Cook County Hospital based on a lead they got that Larry cut his hand open way back on April 8th and had to be taken there for stitches. When the administrator punched Larry's name into the computer, it popped right up. Colin immediately made the assumption that this had to be the night he killed Herrera, and he was proven correct later in court. He figured there was a hell of a struggle between the two, and Larry got his hand cut, severing a tendon, which the surgeon forgot to fix when he stitched Larry's hand. As retribution, Larry cut off Herrera's hand before killing him. This guy is a spiteful son of a bitch, isn't he? <sighs> He's a terrible piece wow. of shit. 
So if they severed the tendon, well, like, I want, do you know where it was in his hand? Mm-hmm. The webbing in between his thumb and index, so he can't, he doesn't have, like, grip motion anymore with really? that hand. Yep. Huh. Back at the barn graveyard, Larry's lug boot prints match several footprints at the scene. There was no blood anywhere on the boot, however, and it was infuriating and confusing investigators. They did something unheard of based solely on a hunch. They cut the boots open. Sure enough, it was soaked from heel to toe in blood. As the boot was being sawed, detectives were building a calendar of Larry's whereabouts for each day since the murders began. Based on what they'd discovered so far, if Larry wasn't the killer, he was following the killer's path exactly day after day. I mean, I I guess you could say maybe he cut his own foot and that blood soaked in there, in the boot. That's, yep, and guess what? That's exactly what they're going to try and do. Okay, I should have been a lawyer for Larry No Heiler. shit. <laughs> but, I mean, you're as qualified to deal with this criminal case as his current lawyer, Ditkowski. Have you, have you ever cut your foot bad enough where it's like soaking blood in your shoe? I don't think I've done it too bad. Like a little bit, not like where it's like a puddle in your shoe. Yeah, no, just, uh, uh, yes, one time I had a concrete block dropped on my toe, Ooh. and it bled like a motherfucker, but yeah, that's about Damn. it. Damn, this sounds like it hurt. Yeah, now I have ingrown toenail on that foot forever. <laughs> on October 15th, a Jasper County farmer near Rensselaer, Indiana, was turning his field when he felt his plow roll over something. He stopped, climbed down, and saw the skeleton of a young man. He abandoned his plow right there and called the police. This body was found right off of I-14, which was a 15-minute drive from Eiler's creepy barn. Investigators could tell from the nicks in the bones that this was exactly like the others, stabbed brutally until dead. This brought the official body count to 15, and the remains remain unidentified to this day. Okay, this means that this farmer had to have not harvested or did whatever in his field for at least a few years, right? Because you're not going to turn to turn to a skeleton in, I would say, at least less than a year. Exposed? Are you mm, sure? Maybe. I'm I mean, sure. wouldn't he have had to have buried him in there, too? That's the thing. He never really buries him. He just covers him up with leaves and debris. Maybe an animal ate the pieces that off could, of him? That could be. That happens later on, too, where Does an animal it? carries a head away for a little bit. There's plenty of coyotes in uh, Illinois and Indiana, so... Definitely could have done it. It's just it, it, weird. They are problematic, coyotes. <laughs> On Thursday, October 27th, key members of the task force drove up to Wakagon to confer with Colin, Smitty, and the rest of the sheriff's police. They're going to try and force state's attorney McCoskey to sign a warrant to force hair and blood samples from Larry Eiler for the murder of Ralph Kalisle. He agreed, and Larry was taken in by Colin and Raleigh. Sounds like they could find his blood and hair samples over half the gay bars in <laughs> Chicago if they wanted to. Just not a semen, because he can't come. <laughs> the entire case hinged on this blood test. The blood found inside the boot came back A-positive. If Larry's blood also came back A-positive, police in two states' entire cases would fall apart, and the justice for almost two dozen victims would never be found. The forensic toxicologist on the job that day was Dr. Spike, and he worked quick. Larry's blood came back O-positive. Uh-oh. Woo! Got his ass. Colin smiled faintly to himself as he nudged Rowley. They had cinched the case. Eiler, who was just sitting in his seat like an obedient idiot, had no <laughs> idea why his blood type was so important, and the detectives never bothered to tell him. What now? Well, I guess we take you back home. 
Colin responded. This wasn't the way he thought he would feel after nailing this bastard. No, this is kind of like a lot of work around to get him here. <laughs> you'd think you'd be able to catch him like in the act or like you see it in a movie, you pull out like a giant butcher knife covered in blood or something. Perf- yeah, and then just be able to slap the cuffs on him and go, there you go, Larry, we got you now, you son of a bitch. Larry doesn't sound like a smart guy, but somehow he has, I guess, fooled the police for 15 murders here. He has this like idiotic charming naivete that they find that he just keeps getting away with shit (laughs) as the news of the blood test traveled up the chain of command smitty called state's attorney mccoskey who agreed they had enough evidence and he was putting together a charge and a bond as they spoke smitty called collins beeper as they were driving larry to his north side home rowley who was driving started heading for a payphone even before colin asked her to when Colin returned to the car, his expression was difficult to read. He leaned into Larry's backseat window and said, Larry, you have just been charged with the murder of Ralph Kalisle, and your bond is set at a million dollars. You wouldn't happen to have that on you, would you? Ooh. He then snapped the cuffs onto Larry's wrists. Two days later, October 29th, 1983, Waukegan, Illinois. The court doors open, and for the first time, Eiler actually appears shaken. Ditkowski opened by bringing up Eiler's unblemished record, and State's Attorney McCoskey opened portraying Eiler as an unstable and violent man. The grand jury deliberated five minutes before deciding to indict Larry and send this to trial. November 12, 1983, Ditkowski was finally able to convince Larry to hire a better, more qualified lawyer for criminal cases named David Skippers. Ooh, interesting. I like that name. In his days as a Chicago prosecutor, Shippers earned his respect all over the world as the man who jailed Sammy Giancana, <laughs> Chicago's second most infamous gangster. Who's number one? Al Capone. <laughs> Giancana had been offered immunity in exchange for his testimony, but instead stayed silent. The grand jury held him in contempt of court for a year, and the mob paid him back for holding on to his omerta by deposing him as boss while he was in jail. And after his release, he ran to Mexico, was apprehended and extradited, and then a mob hitman shot him seven times in his bed while he slept. Yeah, that's the uh, life of a mafia man right there. (sighs) You stay silent, (laughs) you hold to the mafia code, and they fucking plug you with seven and take away your money anyway. I wonder if that was a uh, rival family or if that was was his family. That was the coup from within. Ah, gotcha. Larry spent the next 16 weeks in the overcrowded Wakagan jail, awaiting the prosecutors to get their shit together. Obviously, neither him nor his family and friends could get the $100,000 together to pay the 10% of Larry's bond. Judge Block was in a real pickle. Shippers had him completely convinced that the non-arrest arrest by Trooper Burley was illegal, and Sergeant Cothran searching Larry's truck and finding ropes and duct tape would be completely non-admissible in trial. Also taken from the traffic stop arrest were Larry's boots with Ralph Kalisle's blood inside of them. None of it was to be allowed as evidence in the trial. Shippers whispered to the blue jumpsuit-clad Larry Eiler, We won. Uh Uh-oh. From his seat in the front row of the spectator's bench, Colin saw the investigation crumble along with the hope of the victim's families. Shippers seemed almost gleeful as he approached the bench and asked Judge Block for a new, more reasonable bond. Bond is set at 10000 Eiler is to not leave the state. State's attorney McCoskey was so shocked he almost fell over. All Larry's people had to come up with was 1000 to get Larry back out on the street. 
and they did. Colin was furious. He knew shippers. He liked shippers. And he knew there was no way he would be that gleeful unless he actually believed his client was innocent. He asked him to come back to the station just so he could show him all the evidence that was no longer allowed thanks to dumb Indiana State Troopers that misread the task force order to simply call them if they see Larry or his truck, not not. arrest him without charges. So I would assume shippers would be kind of aware of this or he just didn't have any idea because it wasn't allowed in court. He really, really, really thought. Well, he he fought for it not to be allowed in court. Like anything taken from that Indiana stop was no longer gotcha. Not you'd you'd still think like he would have looked at it a little bit. But. That's the thing, but he 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 didn't really, and he just was going off the assumption that his client was being mistreated by the police. Maybe he did some fucked up stuff, but I he, mean, technically, he's not wrong. I mean, you're not wrong. He he. His rights were violated, regardless if he's a serial killer or not. Colin had Shipper sit at his desk while he brought out the entire presentation, including the calendar police had been building on for months now. At first, Shippers remained outwardly unconvinced, saying this could be anyone, until the pattern was explained. The Indiana Task Force and us have been working together to trace Larry's movements throughout the last year. There are 15 murders we know of right now. Through bills and receipts, we can put Larry at nine of the locations. He pointed further down the calendar. Don't you see the pattern? He kills, then makes a call. Kills and makes a call. Mm. Every time a dead body shows up, a call is made on a payphone to Larry's friends and families and lovers. So, what exactly are you saying? Your client is going to kill again, Mm. and then make a call. Shippers let it all sink in for a moment before his professionalism took back over. He stood up complimented the detectives on their exhaustive police work, shook hands and walked out the door, all without showing on his face what he was actually feeling. Later, Ships would admit, What they gave me was some information about the pattern that shocked me, that shocked me out of my shoes and scared the absolute shit out of me. As Eiler walked away a free man for what seems like the thousandth time in this Mm. series, Mm -hmm. he was wearing jeans, a flannel, and a fleece-lined coat. The exact outfit from the photo Cody posted on Instagram. It's the 80s gay man outfit right there. (laughs) Certainly. There was no one involved in this case, from police to prosecution to defense to judge, that didn't know, at least deep down, that Larry would strike again. He can't help... I mean, I think he's way past the point of, like cooling down so he he's gonna go right back at it he's red hot and Mm. he's feeling his fucking oats i didn't even think about that he's so spiteful he's gonna go right to killing somebody Mm. damn by the early spring larry was growing restless and irritable now that the new car smell of his freedom was wearing off since he couldn't cross the state line his apartment was a revolving door of indiana gentlemen every weekend including dr little and james williams in downtown chicago 15-year-old hustler Danny Bridges was at the high point in his sad life. His family was dead broke, and his parents were abusive alcoholics. But because of his good looks, an older rich man had taken him in and dressed him in designer clothes. Now Danny was living the high life. He had love and comfort, and it felt like the good times would never end. Danny asked his older gentleman if he could go visit his mother for Mother's Day. It's a weird relationship, though. Yeah. I mean, like, you, he doesn't give him any spending money, and he has to ask permission to go places, but he's it, not related to him. And apparently not, they don't have sex, but that's just what this guy he, said. I was going to say, maybe he just said that because otherwise he'd be a pedophile, yeah, absolutely. right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I. this sounds like some weird 
slave shit. I I don't know. It's, he has to ask to go see his mom or whatever. Yeah, like a weird yeah. daddy daddy slave thing. He's not even a Scientologist. I mean, I don't know <laughs> what the fuck's going on here. Either way, the man agreed. And after Danny left, the man noticed a silver pitcher was missing from the shelf. When Danny returned, he admitted to stealing the pitcher because he wanted to be able to give his mother something nice. The man took back all the clothing and dropped Danny off in Uptown. When he returned home, he told his doorman to never let Danny in again. Okay, so kick Danny out. The Lake County prosecutor still had the option to bring Larry to trial for the Ralph Kalisle murder, but they didn't have a fucking case with all of the evidence disallowed. In July of 84, Shippers was able to get Larry's truck released to him. Colin called Smitty and said, Now Larry's got his truck back. I give it 30 days before we find another body. By August 15th, mark my word. So how long did they have it impounded? A... Yeah, over a year. Yeah, I was going to say. I thought thought I remember you mentioned 82. Mm-hmm. 84. 83, and we're in 84, yep. Jeez, what the hell has he been driving around? Nothing. <laughs> Just Nothing. walking everywhere? Yeah. Plus, he can't leave the state anyway. Gotcha. Yeah, that's right. Shippers got Larry set up with a job at the Augustana Boys Home for $4.25 an hour <laughs> as on-site maintenance. The staff absolutely loved him for exactly two weeks until the day he got his truck back. Mm. Then he disappeared from July 26th to 29th. The Boys Home double-checked Larry's references learned of the grand jury murder indictment, and fired him immediately. Don't now Larry was jobless, depressed, and drifting back to his old habits. Don't you think that would have been all over the news? Like, <sighs> how did they miss that? They didn't check, and shippers on the application, he said, remember, don't tell them more than you have to. That form asks if you've ever been convicted of a felony. <laughs> you have not. You've simply been <laughs> indicted. Don't write me down for any of your references, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how he got it, was through Shipper's Good Life. Oh, right? was it? Yeah. It was okay. like a whatever uh, referral job. <laughs> August 21st, 1984, Chicago. Outside Larry's four-story brick apartment, the 56-year-old Hungarian maintenance man was collecting trash from the garbage chutes outside. When he pushed open the lid of the dumpster, he noticed it was full and started yelling at the maintenance man from the property next door. God damn it, your tenants are using my dumpster. I have no room. Thank you, uh, Alabama Hungarian. <laughs> I don't know how Hungarian sounds. German? It's like uh, Count, Trans Count Chocolomania. Uh, let me try it again. God, <laughs> God damn it, your, ten <laughs> your tenants are using my dumpster. I have no room. <laughs> don't make me come up there. I'll leave it to both of there. Okay, sounds good. The Hungarian, a few steps beyond pissed, grabbed the dark, gray, intruding bags with the intention of putting them in the neighbor's dumpster where they belonged when he noticed they were quite a bit heavier mm. than normal kitchen trash. Yeah, he's, he's in for a little surprise. It's not borscht soup in there. It's, <laughs> it's a little surprise. With his curiosity aroused, he ripped one of the bags open and was immediately greeted by a human leg bone and Ooh. bloody t-shirt. He ran for the phone and called police. The officers who responded to the call were very familiar with the Eiler case and immediately stormed apartment 106, where they found Larry and John in bed, now terrified and awakened by police. They noticed the apartment was freakishly spotless and reeked of new paint. A little suspicious here. Larry jumped out of bed in his boxers <laughs> and started screaming and flailing about harassment before starting to wander a bit too close to the open window. An officer tackled and cuffed him. 
John Dobrovolsky and Larry Eiler were properly Mirandized and driven separately to the police station for questioning. Wait, I thought John dumped them. That's, now, it's, now they're kind of like it's go back. Okay. It's always with them, but it's a love for the ages. It'll never it. stop being a love story. I, Better um, love story than Twilight. Uncle Larry's booty's just too good for old John. There, he can't quit it. <sighs> Those two are sprung on each other like a goddamn bear <laughs> trap. It's insane. It's insane. Man, I wonder. Okay, I, I don't remember. Did you mention? Does John? Like the bondage, maybe that John would. John does not allow the bondage. He doesn't allow the bond, but maybe Larry likes the dominance of John. Then he likes that, like, like he's John's... the control. He's the top. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's why he likes John's John. John's the top. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, that... because John is a control freak and a neat mm, freak mm-hmm. and just a freak in general. Maybe he's filling that other void that Larry Larry likes there. He's the the comforted baby. <laughs> maybe John's actually the real killer and. Frame and Larry. Well, people thought that about Dr. Little, too. Really? Mm-hmm. I they think still he don't... was at least an accomplice that helped him hack up bodies and stuff. Because <laughs> I mean... 23 is a lot for one person in, like, a right, year. Right, right. In, like, one year. <laughs> I wouldn't trust Dr. Little. Certainly not. Smitty had friends on Chicago PD, and they called him to let him know they found a chopped-up boy in bags outside Eiler's apartment. In a rare burst of exuberance, Smitty called Colin who ran out of his back door to get to the scene. Colin was angry about one thing, though. He predicted August 15th, and it was now the 21st. Damn it. He lost his bet. Lost the office pool. (laughs) Shortly after 9 a.m., Cook County Medical Examiner Robert Stein showed up. This was the same man who was the first one to lower himself into Gacy's crawl space. Oh, damn. And was the first, besides Gacy, to gaze upon the skulls and bones that lived there. As Stein was inspecting the garbage bags... He made the decision to reconstruct the body on site. We've got to know what's missing. I understand some of these guys keep body parts as souvenirs. We need to know what's missing, and we may have more than one body here. Okay, so he he's instantly going for, like, worst-case scenario. Yes. He's like, okay. I mean, you go in Gacy's crawl space... You're not going to have a good outlook on, on crime scenes, I would imagine. And seven bags, seven full-size garbage bags mm. does seem a bit much for one body. <laughs> yeah. You'd probably need that many to cover the whole body. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, would, would you say they only found a shirt and a leg in one in of them one so of far? In one of them, yeah. Yeah. Seven of the gray bundles were double-bagged, but the one containing the torso was tied with clothesline and covered completely with plastic sheeting. Lab tech Bill O'Connor took it upon himself to reconstruct on site. The skin of the arms was paper white from being drained of blood. O'Connor then put his hand back in the bag, and a chill went up his spine when he felt human hair. Bill removed the head from the bag, and Danny's lifeless eyes seemed to be staring right at him. Out of respect, O'Connor closed the eyes before setting the head down on the dirty alley. Well, he is Irish, and hopefully he didn't put pennies over his eyes. For for the boatman, for Sharon. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. Jesus. So he's just like, they don't know what's in here. He's just sticking his hand in there? Yeah. Ooh. Seems careless. You know, like, when you're younger, schools to set up, like, feely the things spaghetti. for Halloween. Yeah, yeah, spaghetti for human hair. And, uh, no, for guts. Was that brains. Guts? And then grapes were eyeballs. Eyeball. What was the human hair one? I don't remember human hair. I thought they had a human a hair one. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Just well, like whatever I vacuumed up from Sabrina. <laughs> you can use that. I don't want to uh, be reaching my hands in a bloody bag. It sounds... No. A random bloody mm. human grab bag sounds mm. like the worst. Ugh. 
There was complete silence for the 14 minutes it took to figure out there was only one body between all the bags, thank goodness. Mm. The officers stared at the eight pieces they pulled out of the bags. They had the head, two arms, a complete leg, a leg cut in two, the chest, and the abdomen. Crouching close to the cutoff edges of the body parts, Stein noticed this had to be a fine-tooth hacksaw that severed the limbs. I'm still, he, I don't know, did, did you go into detail, does he admit, like, how fast he can dissect a body with that thing? He never does. He doesn't, mm. ex- he doesn't, he doesn't. Like, does he, is one of his arms just, like, ripped from, like, that, like, sawing a body oh, with that thing? Oh, for sure. With Holy a hacksaw? Shit, yeah. Going through bone and, mm-hmm. and everything else that the body has? Oof. The gray plastic bags and their contents were taken to the lab the same time as defense attorney Shipper's phone started ringing at his family cabin in Wisconsin. It was his secretary. We don't know who the boy was that's been killed, but he was found in front of Larry's apartment. Eidler has been hauled in for questioning. Shippers felt as if he'd been socked in the gut. Mm. As time had passed and Larry had been released, he was starting to believe the cops had it wrong and that Larry was actually innocent. All he could muster up was a week, okay, before hanging up the receiver. He called back a minute later, are you sure? His secretary put him on the phone with his law partner, John Gilbert, who filled him in on the pertinent details. Shippers was already looking for his keys as he said, all right, John, go down to Area 6 immediately. Tell Larry you're filling in for me and to keep his fucking mouth shut. Ooh. The fear that haunts every defense attorney had come to pass. Mm Mm-hmm. A man he freed had gone out to kill again. He called his law partner back. You know what, John? Tell Larry to keep his mouth shut and also tell him I'm through. I don't want anything to do with that little son of a bitch and I don't want to ever see him again. I've had it. Didn't this uh, happen to... What's the... the uh, On season two of Making a Murderer? I only watched season one. Ah, okay. Because afterwards I found out all about the production and how they were like gussying shit up and not mentioning other shit to push the narrative that they were innocent. Both of them were innocent. Really? Absolutely. That production was a nightmare. I like the jinx way better than making a murder. Seems like they came out around the same time. The, well, in the second season, there's a really famous lawyer who is known for like overturning, uh, convictions or whatever. It's not the little guy with the glasses, right? No, I love him. It's the, uh, she kind of looks like Skeletor's wife. Uh-huh. I've seen her. Catherine yeah. something. Yeah. But I think how she got famous, what was it? She defended a serial killer and got him off or something. And then she's always like, oh, I always regretted that because clearly he killed people. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds awful mm-hmm. that you're responsible for him. But really, you're only doing the right thing. Defense attorneys, as scumbag as they are, they have to be there to keep. To argue the law so that cops can't just run roughshod all over us. Cops and prosecutors can't just be martial law and take everything. Okay, they might have let out some bad people or out bad people, but there's probably a lot of good people who were innocent who they got out. Absolutely. uh, That don't get talked about. Absolutely. And it always seems like the prosecutors, not so much in this case... But it always seems like the prosecutors are the, the most inept piece of shit <laughs> fucking idiots that they could drag up out of the muck. Well, I, it's, I mean, it seems like most of the time that's like a, if you got the money, you'll get the job type of job. It's like hard from, work, too. It's hard work, and you're not getting the same pay as you are as a defense attorney. That's for sure. But why do they want to do it, then? For that glory and the title? As a sense of public mm. duty, mm. I hope. 
Well, for the same that... reason you'd want to be president, because guess what? Every president is independently a fucking multimillionaire. <laughs> they don't make much. It's like 250000 a year to be president. Well, you're doing it out of civic duty. I, I'll tell you what. I know you don't like the first season of Making a Murder, but the, the prosecutor for that case might be the most I hate him. corrupt guy I'm I've ever the, seen. I'm oh the fat Oxycontin guy that mm. likes to fuck witnesses from other cases. Mm. Isn't that the thing? Was he hitting on... Like victims of other cases. I I don't know. He got kicked off of the case. I remember that. He should have gotten kicked out of law for texting that. I, that's the one thing that sticks with me is him texting like a victim of a case that he prosecuted. Being oh like, we should God. get together for drinks. He yeah, they bring him up quite a bit. He's uh he's not a good dude. What a scum. <laughs> Judge Block got the news as he was leaving for the night. A bailiff brought him in a note containing the details. The judge turned around, walked back in his chambers, and cried for two hours. He was the judge that let him free as well. Gotcha. Okay, so he feels guilty, too. He lowered the bond from a million to 10,000. 10, Danny Bridges' sister, Sharon, was flyering the neighborhood looking for her brother. Police car drove up, and her other brother, Michael, got out of the back, pale as a ghost, and holding pictures loosely to his chest. Sharon begged him to tell her Danny was okay, but he just looked down at the bundle of photos he was holding. The first one showed a cut-up torso with Danny's signature heart tattoo on it. Without needing to see any of the others, she broke down screaming. Why did they give him the crime photos? As identification. Mm-hmm. That's really all they had I mean, on him. God, would you even want that if, of no. your family member that Jesus, was murdered? No. Jesus, Oof. no. Obviously, this was all enough for a judge to sign a warrant for Larry's apartment, and detectives wasted no time. To the untrained eye, the place looked spotless, but the officers knew where to look. They returned day after day, taking everything piecemeal until practically only the walls remained. (laughs) The drain tap was removed to have the hair and slime analyzed. The molding in the doorway was pried up to reveal blood that had seeped under before Larry could mop the floor. Everything found was placed in plastic bags and photographed. Not a thing was done incorrectly. Take your time, Smitty told evidence techs. Larry ain't going nowhere. Okay, they're not fucking up this time. John Dobrovolsky's was cleared almost immediately. Interrogators could tell he was as confused as he was scared. He was taken for a lie detector and then released. Well, released to the Cooks County Sheriff's, where he was put up in a motel and guarded 24-7 until after the trial and told he would be forced to turn state's witness or he would be charged right alongside Larry for the murders. I still don't trust John that much. I just don't. Something about him, Especially because he was in the apartment. Yeah. In the 106 apartment, instead of at his north side home with his family like, and Larry. Like, his demeanor, I'm just getting, like, if the guy from uh, Fifty Shades of Grey was uh, dating a serial killer. Like, that's just, I don't know, I'm getting that type of persona from him. I always thought that guy was a serial killer. <laughs> he I thought probably that was going to be the point of the books, <laughs> but I guess it's not. Actually, have you ever watched uh, Big Little Lies? Is that what it is, the HBO one? With Reese Witherspoon? No, but I've heard so many people, and Nicole Kidman too, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I've heard mm-hmm. a lot of people talk about that. The one. older Skarsgård. Uh, Alexander. Alexander, yeah, he's like a violent husband. Eric Northman. 
Yeah, he's the. It's the only way he can like get off. That's what I'm envisioning. John is kind of like here. That's why all the girls I talk to like it because <laughs> he's a like a violent, controlling Alexander Skarsgård. Yeah, I and mean, some of these girls they like to be fucking knocked around a I little don't, bit. I, I think. don't think that much. Probably not. I haven't seen the show, no. so I don't know. You need to watch it and then be like, well, okay, that's pretty. That's like an abusive uh, husband. No real girl would actually want that. No, just in no. their fantasies, maybe. Well, it was a big thing in uh, in the show because Nicole Kidman's like a, uh, what do you call it? She has to like, method actor. Mm-hmm. And he needed to like physically push her against shit for the show for her to like get in the character. He's so buff though. Yeah, it's uh. He is a real ass. He's just like this. He seems really nice and flips and just mm. fucking beats mm. the shit out of her. It's fucked up. At 8 p.m., the murder charge was approved, and Larry was taken in cuffs from lockup to an interrogation room past a full line of cameras. Larry heard Colin's familiar drawl. Hi, Larry. Told you I'd see you again. <laughs> You're up here in Chicago this time, not Indiana. You're not getting out of this one. Yeah. Larry, it's all over now. Please just tell me what happened. You know I can't talk. Shipper's orders. Colin watched Detective Stone cuff Larry to the table of the interrogation room, and then the door was shut, obscuring Colin's view. Stone started. Look what we found in those garbage bags. He slid the pictures across the table to Larry of Danny's cut-up body. I don't want to see that shit. It makes me sick. Stone then showed him the door molding (laughs) and slid the pictures back across to Eiler. This was just covered in blood, Larry. You think you cleaned up the apartment, but we can't stop finding blood. What happened, Larry? Tell us. He's uh, John just likes his steak extra rare. <laughs> Spilled it all over the ground there. He had to butcher the whole cow in there. <laughs> yeah. Eiler turned away, gagging and coughing until vomit splattered all over the floor. Stone and his partner looked at each other, confused at whether this retching was real or BS. First assistant state's attorney, Angarola, decided to go for the death penalty. <laughs> In Illinois, that meant you had to prove the murder was committed in conjunction with another felony. In this case, Angarola was going to try and connect Larry luring Danny Bridges to his apartment for sex as kidnapping, especially since he was underage. Isn't um, So that'll be the two fel- felonies they're looking for there. Uh, wouldn't chopping up a body be a felony? Not as much. Uh, or... They're also going to charge him with concealing a homicide and unlawful detainment which aren't capital enough you'd think desecrating a body well that's really not even worth that much desecrating a corpse i guess all the goth kids from hot topic can go dig up graves and not have to worry about getting in trouble i mean you'll get in trouble (laughs) would you get in more trouble for that or killing smoking a doob oh smoking a doob definitely Mm. and that's way worse for your mental (laughs) than hacking up a body Shippers had sunk into a deep depression and debated giving up the law for good. He never wanted to see Eiler again. He had no doubt that Larry was involved in the murders now, but he still felt as if Larry couldn't have done them all by himself. In between sips of whiskey, Shippers received a phone call telling him State's attorney was seeking the death penalty, and he knew he couldn't sit back and read in the papers for the rest of his life that the only reason Larry Eiler was convicted was because he was represented by a public Mm. defender. Shippers was so depressed he couldn't even go see Back to the Future (laughs) 2. I can't do it, man. I'm too depressed. I know it's the hottest movie right now. I can't do it. Young Elijah Wood. One day he's going to be a hobbit. He plays an asshole in that one. That's uh, He's like, 
You play with your hands? That's a baby game. Number two? Yeah, that's number two, yeah. He's an asshole in he, the arcade that doesn't under that that hates that Michael J. Fox would want to play a video game with his hands because that's a baby's game. Gotcha. Elijah's got to be young as shit. Very right? young. Okay. All right. That uh, I haven't seen that one in a while. All I remember is like Butch or no? Is it Butch? The no. What's the bad guy's name? Well, it's Biff. Biff. Yeah. That's in his like pleasure tower yeah, or whatever the fuck yeah. it is. <laughs> that's a good one. Three <laughs> just sucks. But never seen it. It's weird. They were filmed at the exact same time, back to back, kind of like uh, Matrix two and three were. Hmm. But two is great, and three is terrible. I guess with the Matrix too. So, but two's not that great in the Matrix. But I still like it. I haven't seen those in so long. You should give those a rewatch. They're worth it. Except for number three, it's not worth it. (laughs) September 13th, 1984, in the marble hallway of the criminal courts building, families of victims were milling about, waiting for their loved one's killer, Larry Eiler, to enter his plea. Assistant public defender Claire was waiting in the judges' chambers for her partner Tom Allen to show up for the hearing. As an overworked public defender, Tom Allen was currently tied up with another murder case across the hall, which was running late. Shippers came strolling in and introduced himself to Claire. He said he was here to assist in the case. He didn't have the time or money to get as involved as he did last time, but he'd be willing to help as much as he could. I don't want to be on the payroll. Your office can cover our expenses, and I'll, and I'll give you my experience as a defense lawyer and as someone who knows Larry very well. Pro bono. The three attorneys stood together at the defense table as Assistant State's attorney Angarola walked in. He stopped in his tracks when he saw Shippers standing there, before flashing a grin and nodding at him. The judge called the court to order and called the counsel to his bench. Shippers entered a plea of not guilty. In his heart of hearts, he knew no judge in the world would ever let Eiler walk free again, but in February he requested a hearing to suppress evidence anyway, and Judge Urso ruled the only way that he could. All evidence would be allowed this time. July 1st, 1986. The courtroom is packed nuts to butts with evidence, and it looked like an episode of Hoarders in there. Larry Eiler was walked in the double doors wearing brown pants and a yellow shirt. As he sat down, shippers patted him on the shoulder. Immediately, Eiler got in a staring contest with one of the jurors. This is like a flirting one? Just no, staring. he was... As as uh, Angarola was giving his opening statements, one of the jurors was like like looked over at Larry... And when Larry noticed that, he stared right back at him. And then they just stared at each other the whole time. (laughs) Doesn't look good when you're on trial for murder. No, absolutely not. Dr. Steen, the medical examiner that did Gacy, was called to the stand to describe putting together the body of Danny Bridges, as well as to expertly testify that the dismemberment was done with a hacksaw, and the incisions were made at the neck, the arms below the shoulder, the hips, and the knees. They also found an entire bat pack of hacksaw blades in Eiler's kitchen drawer. Mm, That's a little suspicious. There were no facial fractures on Danny, but he had a black eye. There were 14 puncture marks in his chest made with an ice pick. Stein went on to describe the multiple knife wounds, one to the left of the belly button that was so deep and violent, it Uh, led to intestines hanging out of the wound, which was Larry's trademark. Yeah. The three wounds in the back were so deep that the blade perforated the heart and the left lung. On the wrists were round abrasions concurrent with handcuffs, another similarity to the others. Did I, a little off topic here. Did I talk about uh, the Vikings player who got, apparently the cleat went through like the 
spaces in his ribs and uh, punctured his lung? No. Yeah. That just happened a few weeks ago. Holy shit. How does that even happen? Holy fuck. Because we're gross-ass, weak meatbags that are worthless. But isn't a cleat only, like, maybe like that? But it doesn't take much, right? I'm sure it got in between his ribs and then some kind of tissue or something inside him is what punctured his lung. Man, that is bad luck. How is so he's out, right? Yeah, he he he's out. He I think it happened during the Packers game. So go figure. <laughs> we were getting in trouble for stepping on Aaron Rodgers. I remember a few years ago. No, that was uh, Sue. Sue did that. Do you remember? Oh, and Dominican Sue did that. Now, I, I always remember he stepped over him, backed up, stomped on him, back forward yeah. again. Yeah. Okay. I thought that was <laughs> us for some reason. No. No. no we did Sue. the. That was the and. It was the bar hit, right? Yeah, the yeah. legal hit that they're still upset about. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. perfectly fucking legal. I said, that was a delicious moment. It was so good. Mm-hmm. It was so good. 21st September, 1986. The closing arguments were made. The judge turned to the jurors and said, It is your duty to determine the facts and to determine them only from the evidence in this case. Neither sympathy nor prejudice should influence you. This was followed by the usual cautions against considering statements that had been stricken from the record. Urso then ordered all evidence wheeled into the jury room for them to consider at will. Now that the jury was driving this case and they were sequestered, they had no idea where to even begin. The evidence spoke for itself. Every piece except for the photographs was covered in Danny's blood. The jurors thought Shippers made a mistake by not putting Larry on the stand. As it was, there was nothing to offset all of this evidence. Mm. I don't, I don't think Larry would have done any good in his own case, though. But honestly, anything, yeah. anything, mm. anything. I don't, Larry just seems like he can't control his temper. Probably can't be tamed. Yeah, I, I don't know. It would have been funny, probably watching him get <laughs> upset on there. But, uh, but yeah. As the jurors waited for the bailiff to bring their deliberation pizza, <laughs> the forewoman asked the other jurors how they felt preliminarily about the case. They were all in agreement that Larry committed the murder, but there was some debate as to whether or not the kidnapping statute would apply. As they were not judges or lawyers, they couldn't separate the law from the thought of a terrified handcuffed 15-year-old getting Mm. stabbed with an ice pick 14 times before being finished off with several deep knife thrusts that went halfway through his body. They came to an agreement that it was definitely kidnapping. Eiler was sitting in a holding cell during deliberations, handcuffed to the wall, Shippers walked up to him and said, Hang in there. Say a prayer. It's in God ha- God's hands now. That's, what is that's this? always great. What is this? A fucking NFL game going <laughs> on right now? <laughs> okay, coach. <laughs> you got it, coach. God, I... Uh, it was a few weeks ago, or maybe it was like a month ago, Ben Roethlisberger yeah. comes up and he's like, first of all, I got to thank our Lord and Savior yeah. Jesus Christ. I'm like... I think you might be a rapist, you dude. Are a what rapist. are you doing? You fucking rapist. Hey, Ray Lewis did the same thing after when he won the Super Bowl. Yeah, commit some heinous crimes and then just God'll take care of me. Always. Mm. Uh, that was a great Super Bowl interview though cuz he just jacked the mic from the interviewer <laughs> and walked away. It's like it's the Ray Lewis show now. <laughs> At 8:52 p.m., all the attorneys beepers went off. The jury had come to a verdict. The prosecution knew they nailed it, as long deliberations can only be good for the defense. Mm. Judge Urso looked at the jury box and said, Miss Fallperson, has the jury reached a verdict? We have, Your Honor. She handed the slip to the court clerk who read it aloud. We, the jury, find the defendant Larry Eiler guilty of the offense of murder 
guilty in the offense of aggravated kidnapping, guilty of the offense of unlawful restraint, guilty of the offense of concealment of a homicide. Oof, he got his ass. Eiler showed no emotion as several of the victim's families silently celebrated and put hands over their mouths. Mm. Well, I mean, maybe he's excited all the booty he's going to be getting in prison. Ooh, just slaying that (laughs) ass. September 30th, 1986. It was now up to Judge Urso to decide whether Eiler lives or dies as the death penalty hearing opened. The 23 victims could not speak, but the prosecutors brought out three survivors of Larry to to share their story. Believe it or not, their testimony was pretty damaging to Larry. Mm. They rested with the statement, If it wasn't for that Hungarian maintenance man, Eiler would be out on the streets today. Violence, torture, and death hang over this man like a shadow. When Larry Eiler walks through the prison gates, that shadow of torture and death will follow him. If he is sentenced to anything other than death, you will be giving him freedom. Shippers came out and rested the defense with... Judge, you have followed the law this entire case, and I urge you to do it again. There are mitigating factors, and unless there are none, you can't sentence this young man to die. We beg for mercy and for you to follow the law. Urso ordered a ten-minute recess before asking Eiler if he had anything to say to help him pass a sentence. In his first public statement since January of 84, Eiler said, I don't think it has anything to do with your sentence, Your Honor. I just want to publicly thank you and your staff over the last two years I've been in your courtroom. They've been very nice to me despite all the circumstances surrounding myself. (laughs) What the fuck? Okay, I guess he's keeping it polite to the end. He probably doesn't care, honestly. Then the judge announced his sentence. I find the decision that I make today a difficult one. The senseless and barbaric murder of a 15-year-old boy, a killing so brutal and heinous it defies description, Shows me your complete disregard for human life. You even tried to take away his last bit of dignity by denying him a proper burial as a whole human being, not just discarded like several bags of trash to disappear and never be seen or heard from again. If there were ever a reason for the death penalty to exist, it's you. You deserve to die for your acts. I thereby sentence you, Mr. Larry Eiler, to death for the murder of Danny Bridges committed during the course of his aggravated kidnapping. When you'll be put to death by lethal injection into your body, Mr. Eiler, I pray to God that he has mercy on your soul. Mm, He politely roasted him. (laughs) Eiler would never make it to the lethal injection table. Not just because Illinois doesn't execute its death row inmates, but because he would die in prison of AIDS-related complications on March 6th, 1994. So he he probably had to have had... HIV prior to going into prison. No, no, no he got no. it in there. Huh? Well, he did not necessarily that he did or didn't, but he had been in there since, uh, well, the trial started in 84. So he mm. was in jail since 84 and he died in 94. So who knows? He I mean, could have, or he couldn't have, it can lay dormant for a long time for mm. sure. I was going to say, if he had a prior, he probably could be responsible for killing more people. Although not violently, by wow. giving them HIV. I still consider that serial killing, because mm. you are carelessly endangering people's lives when you know you have HIV and you're fucking them without a condom. I wonder if he did know he had it or not. That's fucked. It's that, fucked. I know, that is really fucked up. Uh, I mean, good thing he's off the street. Did they ever say, like, how... Larry and Danny actually met, or they just found his body, or he kidnapped him, or they north think side. he came? Just Northside. Just they ran were just into hanging him. around. Yep, hanging around the same haunts that he found the other twenty-two in. 
So technically, Larry probably could have gotten away with all the first murders if he did not uh, kill Danny. If he wasn't out on fucking bail Mm. and decided to keep serial killing. But Mm. I guess that's why it's not a decision. It's an impulse. And you're a broken, sick monster. Yeah, I I guess it's an irresistible urge. Yeah. uh, That's what all them, what they always say, so. Dexter calls it his dark passenger. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you liked this series, you should tell us about it on our uh, website. You go to bumblebuttpodcast.com, fill out the form, and we will talk about it. Hell yeah. This week, we have a form submission that I would like to talk about. Let's do it. Hey, lads, let me start by saying I love the podcast. The research and banter are great. I listen to podcasts at work and on the way home. I started listening two weeks ago, and I'm almost caught all the way up. I'm hooked. Also wanted to say, when I was tuning in the other day, you guys were talking about the word cunt. Cunt (laughs) is a word that is fully integrated into the Aussie language. Like, if I was talking about my mate Scott, I would say, Scott's a good cunt. (laughs) Which means great bloke. It isn't an insult here, but if someone calls you champ, that means that you're about to throw down with that fella. I love the podcast, guys. I've been telling all my friends about it. Wish you all the best over there. Centrally, always a fan, Jack. Ooh, thank, thank you, Jack. you, Jack. Actually, I think champ might be an insult everywhere. Hey, champ. Because it's kind of it's kind of like calling someone uh, what uh, kitty kid or something. Well, if you're saying it in that way, true. where you're like, uh, all right, chump, or all right, champ, all right, champ. You know, you got it. Go get him, champ. Mm. Yeah. We used to say sport all the time. Old sport. Is that somebody? Hey, old spot. Uh, no, it sounds like a TV. Okay, you know what? I know what that is. A great grad speech. That's it. That's God it. damn it. Hey, old spot. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I hate that. Well, I hate the Leo one. Yeah. I like, uh, you know, Wait, the there's book. An old, oh, the book. Okay. I thought they, said... Yeah, there's an old movie, too. Is there? Absolutely. Okay. That thing's been around forever. They've made a hundred movies out of it. <laughs> uh, that, that's fantastic. Now it's time for the most important part of the show, what? you all need to do mm-hmm. and that is to follow us on spotify spotify revolution in full effect and what you really need to do uh to grow our to make my penis grow <laughs> is to leave us a five star five star written itunes review hell yeah we got one more well we've gotten several reviews but yeah. one written that i can read for you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh it is cha cha check it out by check it out inner 628 Aner 628. <laughs> like many others, I found this on Instagram and decided to check it out. I started with the Amish country murders, and I gotta awesome. say, I love that they covered this. Awesome. The chemistry between the hosts is fantastic also, or I two, I should say. I love it. Yeah, the Amish, they're near and dear to my heart, so I had to... God, that was a long time ago. Yeah, like a long time ago. I think that was episode... Tw- in the 20s. That was when Jordan first came along. I know we were definitely upstairs at the time. Oh, yeah. That was, I think that's when Jordan first joined, and uh, we don't know where Jordan is anymore, so. We didn't know where he was before, and now <laughs> we still don't know where he is. So. Goddamn. All right. Fantastic. Also, if you want to be a superstar, you can buy a shirt Hell on yeah. our website. And if you want to be a super, super, superstar, you can join our Patreon like our new friends that joined us this week. Yeah, let's thank him here. We've got to thank... Uh, thank you so much, Taylor. Taylor, you're a beast. Thank you so much, Megan. Thank you so much, Kelsey. Megan and Kelsey are beasts. And thank you so much, 
Tiffany. Thank all you, your Tiffany. stuff. All your stuff has been sent out. It's so. all in the mail. It's all in the mail. You'll be getting it. I well, I don't. It seems like the post office is really fucked up right now. Yeah, you'll be getting it when <laughs> when the post office decides to give it to you. It's yeah, out of our hands. With the election and all that, it seems like the post office is just... Well, they're too busy writing in fake votes for Joe Biden. <laughs> you know what? I knew it was bad when, like, the blue box, drop box, I put the cards and stuff in there, and I could feel all the letters the second <laughs> I put it in there. So I'm like, somebody, to the brim. somebody is not emptying this. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, you'll get them, I guess, when USPS decides to start working. You'll get them when you get them. And guess what? You'll love it when you get it. Hell yeah. And you're going to like the way you look, you guarantee it. <laughs> Men's in Warehouse. Men's Warehouse. Hell yeah. Well, that's going to do it for all of us here at the Bumble Bumble Podcast. Uh, thank you very much for listening. My name's been Adam. That's been Cody. Thank you, Cody. Thank you, Adam. All right, everybody. Have a nice weekend, unless it's Tuesday. Later. Later.